Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Before I get started today, I just have a huge ask for you. To celebrate three years of Military Murder Podcast, if you haven't already, It would mean the world to me if you popped on over on your favorite podcast platform and rated the show five stars. No review needed, just pop on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click five stars. You see, being a podcaster is kind of like being an Uber driver. People wanna listen to what is hot and in and reviews are the social proof. All right, with all of that out of the way, let's get on to part two of this ever tragic story. Join me today as I bring you the conclusion of the Sutherland Springs church shooting. Now, let's dig in. My sources for this episode include a report of investigation by the Department of Defense Inspector General's Office, court records, find a grave sites for various victims, and articles in the New York Times, NBC News, Express News, CNN, The Texas Tribune, Washington Post, KEPR-TV, Ken's Five, The Guardian, and Courthouse News. After figuring out that Devin Kelly was a shooter, investigators went to the home he shared with his wife, Danielle. When they interviewed her, Danielle had a lot to say. Now, just a refresher, Devin was married to Danielle and they had two kids, a two-year-old son and a five-month-old daughter. So Danielle said that earlier that morning, November 5th, 2017, Devin asked Danielle to make him a light breakfast. Now, this request surprised Danielle because Devin typically asked for a, quote, heaping plate of tacos, end quote, for breakfast. In any event, she did as he asked. But then after he ate his breakfast, things got weirder because he went over to the bathroom and he threw up. Danielle asked him if he was okay, and he responded, quote, we only have about an hour left, end quote. The statement didn't really make sense but Danielle figured that he met an hour before he had to go to work. In retrospect, after the events of the day, Daniel told the Express News, quote, he was really different and off. Now, going back and looking at it, the things he said then, it was all messed up, end quote. As reported extensively by the Express News, Daniel told authorities that after breakfast and vomiting, the couple sat on the couch, when all of a sudden, and almost like a robot, Devin stood up, grabbed their son, and put him in the bedroom. The baby was already in the bedroom in her crib. Then Devin forced Danielle into the room and onto the bed, where he bound his wife to the bed using rope, handcuffs, and duct tape. Devin then told his wife, love you. He kissed his baby and he told the toddler, I'll be back. He then grabbed his AR-556 he put on his black military-style tactical gear, and a bulletproof vest, and then he left. Within the hour, unbeknownst to his wife, Kelly arrived at the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs. In the hour between tying up his wife and entering the church, 
Devin then sent a text message to his parents. Reminder, his parents are Rebecca and Michael Kelly. Devin asked them to go to his house, which was located on the same property as theirs. Specifically, he sent them over because his wife needed help. They then ran over to the house and that's where they found Danielle tied to the bed. They tried to release Danielle, but they couldn't find the handcuff key. So his mom texted him, where's the key? Devin then called her and the mom put the phone on speaker. That's when Devin said that he'd done a terrible thing and he didn't know what he was thinking. He repeated this over and over and over again. As reported by Ken's Five, Devin then confessed, quote, Mom, I killed a bunch of people, end quote. His father now chimed in, you did what? Where? What is this place you're talking about? I guess at some point, Devin mentioned Sutherland Springs, and that's when Danielle reminded them that her mother lived in Sutherland Springs. Devin then told his wife to take him off speakerphone. Presumably, she had been released from her restraints by her in-laws at this point. But before she took him off speakerphone, Devin told his parents that he was dying. According to Danielle, Devin then told her he loved her. Then he blamed her for the shooting and said that all of this was her fault. And then he shot himself. As investigators dug into Devin's past to find out why he would commit such a mass murder at a church, they leaned on Devin's parents and his wife. They wanted to know why. Both sets of parents, her parents and his parents, said that after Devin got out of jail and out of the military, he spiraled into a deep depression. He was one person when he entered the military and a completely different person when he got out. Devin's descent is very apparent as you follow the timeline of events that happen next. For this next part, I am just going to tell you everything that went down in chronological order because that's how it makes sense to me. March 5th, 2010, Devin graduated from BMT, Basic Military School, at Joint Base San Antonio Lackland. He first PCS or transferred first military base was Goodfellow Air Force Base in Texas. That's where the Air Force houses their intel school and Devin was training to become a network intel analyst. Soon after his arrival, he was cleared to have a top secret SCI security clearance. But it was around this time that Devin began having issues with work. Specifically, he was failing out of intel school. By November 2010, eight months after his arrival, Devin was eliminated from his training because he failed four tests and did not meet academic standards. And with that, instead of just discharging him from the Air Force, in January of 2011, the Air Force sent him to Fort Lee in Virginia. At Fort Lee, Devin would be training as a traffic management apprentice. But his troubles kept up with him because here he was still getting written up at work. Not even a whole month after arriving in Virginia, Devin started to date a woman named Tessa, a woman he knew from back home in New Braunfels, Texas. She was a single mom to a little boy who I will just call Jack. And well, bada bing, bada boom. And by April 2011, Devin and Tessa were married. And with that, it appeared that Devin completed his training and he was transferred to Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico with his new family. But in June of that year, Jack began having stints where he had to go to the hospital for uncontrollable vomiting. Remember, Jack is a little baby at this point. The first visit occurred from June 2nd to June 5th. Jack was hospitalized for vomiting, diarrhea, and seizures. He returned home, but his vomiting returned. And three days later, the doctors told Tessa to bring him back in. Now, I should point out that by this point, Jack was roughly 11 months old. 
That day, as Tessa was getting ready to take Jack back to the hospital, Devin returned home to help her. Devin tended to Jack in the living room while he cried uncontrollably. Tessa, however, was in the room. She was trying to get everything ready. And well, unbeknownst to Tessa, while she wasn't in the room, Devin claims that he got so frustrated that he slapped baby Jack with enough force that the baby fell over on his side, leaving two bruises, one on his face and one on the other side of his ear. When baby Jack returned to the hospital, he was treated by the same physician he had seen a few days earlier. And the bruising was clear to this pediatrician. So suspecting abuse, Jack was admitted into the hospital. Through examinations, it was revealed that Jack had a fractured clavicle and bleeding of the brain. Of course, this solidified the pediatrician's suspicions and Jack was immediately placed in the custody of the state. Because Devin was in the military, the Children, Youth and Family Department contacted OSI, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, to inform them of the possible abuse. Now, OSI brought Devin in for an interview and afterwards they took his fingerprints and even a DNA sample. Well, without Jack at home, it wouldn't be long until Devin took his anger out on his wife. On June 24th, Devin grabbed his wife, Tessa, by the throat and he strangled her and threw her into the wall. After this violent outburst, Tessa confided in a person that she knew who was in the Air Force Reserve. Of course, the person that Tessa confided in informed her military leadership who in turn contacted Devin's leadership and an investigation into that assault allegation was launched. But sadly, as happens with many victims of domestic violence, when the investigators asked Tessa about the incident, she made no mention of abuse and she declined to make a statement. Without her statement, there was not much else they could do. Two months later, the Central Registry Board on the military installation met to discuss Devin's allegation of abuse against his stepson. The CRB, as it is known, is a group made up of installation reps that review all reports of domestic abuse and child maltreatment. Because the board didn't have a ton of facts, they deferred making any type of decision pending more information. But by October, they had received all the information they needed and they determined that the details of the incident met the criteria for child physical maltreatment and they entered Devon into an internal central registry database. It's a DOD database that tracks incidents of spousal and child abuse. It should be noted that in the fall, September of 2011, through the following summer, June of 2012, Devin underwent some voluntary mental health treatment. Specifically, he was there to treat his ADHD, his generalized anxiety disorder, depression, antisocial personality disorder, agitation, and difficulty sleeping. He took several medications, including Ambient, Clonopin, and Celexa. So anyway, Four months after Devin was placed on the registry on February 12th, 2022, Devin went over to the base exchange and he purchased a gun, specifically a 38 special revolver. He filled out the firearm paperwork and the base exchange ran their NICS check and Devin was cleared to buy a gun. So five days later, not sure if out of fear or just feeling like enough was enough, Tessa reported to the Air Force Security Forces claiming that Devin was abusive. She said it all began in March of 2011. Sadly, the first assault occurred a month before they got married, but she married him anyway. She said that on Christmas Eve 2011, Devin again pushed her. He strangled her. He threatened her and proceeded to drag her by the hair into the bathroom. The following month in January of 2012, 
While vacationing at the home of someone that Tessa knew, Devin attempted to sexually assault a female in the home. The female must have told Tessa because the following day, Tessa confronted Devin. He was like, it wasn't me. But later, he was like, yeah, I did it. But if you ever tell anyone, I will kill you. The following month, Devin attacked Tessa again, slapping her and pulling her hair. Tessa reported the incident and Devin was brought in for questioning. And before he was let go, he was told that he would have to turn over his weapon to the first sergeant. Devin complied and the weapon was stored in the armory. Devin was also issued a no contact order from his commander, directing he make zero contact with his wife. And if he needed to chat with her about anything, he would have to use his first sergeant as a mediator. This order lasted a month, which is typical. I would like to stop and acknowledge that in my personal opinion, the first sergeant position is by far the hardest job, at least in the Air Force. Listen, the good ones are there before everyone. They are there after everyone leaves and they are constantly on their phone, checking on people, sending care packages, bailing people out of jail. No joke. Picking drunk people up. I mean, it seems like a thankless job. To any current or former first sergeants out there who are listening to me, trust me, we see you and we appreciate you. At least we do at the legal office. All right, I digress. Within days of the domestic violence report, Devin voluntarily checked himself into an inpatient mental health treatment. It was the Peak Behavioral Health Services in Santa Teresa, New Mexico. There, Devin was diagnosed with adjustment disorder with depressed mood and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. He stayed there for roughly two weeks and then he was discharged. After his release, he was treated eight times at the mental health clinic on base. But during this time, Devin paid another little visit to the base exchange. This time, he purchased a 9mm semi-automatic handgun and some ammo. Five days after buying the gun, unbeknownst to anyone, Devin received a letter of reprimand for assaulting his wife. By the way, a letter of reprimand is literally a piece of paper with a bunch of words. It really doesn't hold much weight in the grand scheme of things, and it is definitely not a criminal document. It is an administrative document and expires within two years of being issued. As a response to the letter of reprimand, Devin basically gave a mea culpa and claimed that his two weeks at inpatient treatment changed him into a better man who could control his emotions, which honestly, what a crock of warm poop. Listen, not even a week later, Devin and Tessa were in the car together about to pick someone up from the airport when Devin, no kidding, pointed his gun at Tessa and said, do you want to die? Tessa pushed the gun away and then Devin put the gun in his mouth. Then Devin threatened to kill Tessa if she told anyone about this particular incident. And then Devin made a confession. He told Tessa that she was so stupid for being with him because he had actually attacked her son a year earlier in June of 2011. Oh my gosh. So he confesses to Tessa that he hit Jack multiple times and it actually started while they were dating. A few days later, Devin made a 20 minute confession tape with his face and all where he admitted to slapping Jack, pushing Jack, shaking him, just to name a few. He admitted his wife never witnessed the abuse. KPRC 2 Houston received a copy of the video from the Air Force through a FOIA, of course, 
And the news channel released portions of it in a news report about the shooting. And I watched it. And watching Devin Kelly on the video is chilling because it is just very matter of fact and cold. And like he shows no remorse. In the video, he says the oddest thing. And in retrospect, it really does point to the possibility that Devin had been planning a mass shooting all along. He said something to the effect of, quote, this is not the first mistake and this is not the last mistake. There's probably plenty to come, unfortunately, end quote. What in the world? After he recorded this video, Devin gave the video to Tessa so that she could use it to gain custody of her son again. Tessa, however, wanted his unit to have it as well. So she provided the confession to Devin's first sergeant. And with that, she also told the first sergeant about his threat to kill her. On April 30th, Devin again voluntarily admitted himself into the treatment facility off base. It should be noted that Devin told his first sergeant that he never told Tessa he was going to kill her. Devin was like, oh, no, there must have been a miscommunication. I said I was going to kill myself. While at the inpatient facility, Devin was placed on the high risk alert because of the homicidal and suicidal ideations. On May 3rd, OSI brought Tessa in for questioning again, and she unleashed about all of the domestic violence. He strangled her. He hit her. He kicked her. He even pulled her hair out, along with threatening to kill her every chance he got if she ever reported it. It is safe to assume that Tessa was scared for her life and scared for her son's life. Then in mid-May, while still at the inpatient treatment, Devin was searching online for guns and body armor. And you are not going to believe this. But on June 6, Devin called the base exchange and placed an order for a nine millimeter handgun. Devin was like, yeah, I'm going to be there in about a week. Just go ahead and hold that for me. The base exchange took the order, but they were like, the hell we are. And they contacted OSI. Now, I'm not sure if OSI had informed them to be on the lookout for Devin or whatever, but good on the base exchange. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy. And it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus, which listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. 
That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code Mama Margo, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. Just as a reminder, it's June 2012 and Devin had voluntarily committed himself into a mental health facility when all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, Devin walked right out of the facility. He jumped a fence and made it to a Greyhound bus stop. While he was there, he was stopped by a Greyhound security guard, cuffed by the El Paso cops, and was taken back to the facility. It should be noted that when he left the facility and was reported missing, the caller told the police that Devin was a real danger to society and they believe he might be attempting to carry out death threats on his military superiors. What in the world is up with this guy? Well, the following day, Kelly was discharged. Now, I don't know if it was because he was voluntarily there and he checked himself out, but while he was there, he was diagnosed with the following. And this is going to be a big quote. Just want to put it out there. Quote, he was diagnosed with major depression disorder, recurrent severe without psychotic features, panic disorder with agoraphobia, attention deficit disorder, antisocial traits, seasonal allergies, severe problems with primary support system with pending divorce, problems related to social environment, economic problems, occupational problems, legal problems, other psychosocial and environmental stressors, and a global assessment of functioning scale of 55, end quote. It should be noted that when Kelly filled out his release paperwork from the mental health institution, he annotated no when they asked whether he had any firearms. While all of this is going down in the background, Devin's unit is working to get some charges against this guy for the crimes against his wife and the baby. But more importantly, they want to place Devin's ass in pretrial confinement because they believe he is a real danger to others, which same. Devin was placed into pretrial confinement and the trial took place in lightning speed. But before he even went to trial for attacking his wife and her child, Tessa was able to safely divorce Devin. In November of 2012, Devin ended up pleading guilty at his general court martial to assaulting his wife and the baby. During the guilty plea, Devin was required to tell the judge what he did. And this is what he said. He told the judge that when he and Tessa argued, he would get so angry that he would confront her. And then he said he would punch her and strangle her and pull out her hair and threaten her. He told the judge, quote, I know our arguments are very heated, but I can't believe I did something like that. Every day I asked myself how I could get that angry and hurt her, end quote. About hurting the baby, Devin simply told the judge, quote, sir, this is the worst thing I've done in my life and I will never allow myself to hurt someone like this again. I'm so sorry end quote, blah, blah, blah. Clearly, what he said was a lie. For his offenses against his wife or now ex-wife and ex-stepson, Devin was sentenced to a year in confinement, a bad conduct discharge, and reduction to the grade of E1. Now, let me just say that due to the nature of the crime, a domestic assault against his wife and his stepson, this conviction was reportable to the FBI in accordance with Department of Defense policy. This conviction in and of itself should have prevented Devin from ever buying a firearm again. But more on this in a little bit. After Devin's court martial, he was taken back to jail, but now he was no longer in pre-trial confinement. He was actually in post-trial confinement. There, Devin served six months in jail. And on March 31st, 2013, 
Devin was released from military confinement. Upon his release from jail, Devin was barred from entering Holloman Air Force Base indefinitely, and he was barred from all other military installations. Devin then returned to New Braunfels, Texas to live in a renovated barn located on his parents' property. At some point after arriving in Texas, Devin allegedly sexually assaulted an unidentified woman at his parents' home on more than one occasion. At some point, the woman reported the assault to Devin's ex-wife and then reported it to the police. However, at some point, the woman refused to cooperate with the investigation and the case was closed. By the following year, 2014, Devin and Danielle began dating. Danielle would later reveal that she dated him because he harassed her so often that she just gave in. When Devin first placed his hands on her, Danielle reported the abuse to a friend who in turn reported it to the police. But when deputies arrived to take a statement, Danielle told them it was, quote, a misunderstanding and teenage drama, end quote. On April 14, 2014, Devin and 19-year-old Danielle got married and they soon moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado. By May 9, 2014, Devin was officially discharged from the military with a bad conduct discharge. Within two months and while in Colorado Springs, Devin was charged with animal cruelty for beating his dog. For this crime, he was sentenced to 18 months of probation. He also had to undergo an animal cruelty course. He paid a $168 fine and he paid $368 in restitution for kenneling his dog. And then on December 22, 2014, just six months after being released from prison on domestic violence charges, Devin walked into Specialty Sports and Supplies in Colorado Springs and he purchased himself a 9mm handgun. When he filled out the ATF paperwork, he checked no when asked if he had been convicted of a felony or any other crime for which the judge could have imprisoned him for more than one year. At this point, Devin Kelly became obsessed with guns. He spent all his money and his family's money on guns. He'd take them apart, excessively clean them, shoot them. On a monthly basis, Devin went to the store to buy more ammo, more magazines. Danielle knew that he was buying guns, but she was oblivious that he was also buying things like masks, a ballistic vest, and other items that he would ultimately use during the massacre. And Devin's neighbors, they were not oblivious to Devin's shooting practice. One neighbor told the Express News that sometimes Devin's target practice would last hours. Six months after buying his first post-jail gun, Devin walked back into specialty sports in Colorado Springs and purchased another gun. This time, it was a 357 Magnum revolver handgun. Now, if you're anything like me, you're like, okay, so maybe the first gun purchase meant there was a holdup with the Air Force conviction paperwork. But it wasn't. It just didn't exist. They never sent the paperwork. The paperwork was never filed with the FBI. Devin's name was never placed in a database to keep him from purchasing guns. In 2015, Devin and Danielle moved to Texas to live on his parents' property. In Texas, Devin applied for a license to carry a handgun, but his application was denied due to the Colorado animal cruelty conviction. Then, on August 26, 2015, Devin attempted to get access to Joint Base San Antonio Lackland, but he was denied due to the existing barment letter from Holloman Air Force Base. 
Six months later, on February 17, 2016, Devin attempted to gain entry into Holloman Air Force Base, but again, he was denied. Now, let me just say, isn't it scary to think now in retrospect what could have happened if he was allowed onto the installation on any of these occasions? On April 7, 2016, Devin walked into an Academy Sports in Texas, and he purchased an AR-556 semi-automatic rifle. Months later in September, Devin sent his former military supervisor a Facebook message that read, quote, Hey, you stupid bitch. You should have been put in the ground a long time ago. Better hope I don't ever see you. You can't face facts, you fat piece of shit. End quote. The former supervisor took a screenshot and kept it. Months later, she received another message from Devin that said something to the effect of, my only regret was not ending you when I had the chance. The only thing you deserve is a long dirt nap. For this message, the prior supervisor reported the message to Facebook. And before she even had a chance to take a screenshot, Facebook deleted the message. On October 18th, 2017, just weeks before the shooting, Devin walked into Academy Sports again, and this time he purchased a 22 caliber handgun. Starting in May of 2017, according to Danielle, Devin appeared to be spiraling into a deeper depression. He had a short fuse and it seemed that everything was a fight with him. He abused his anxiety medication and then he became a recluse. During their marriage, Danielle told a detective of the horrible life she lived filled with domestic violence. The first time she got pregnant, she told investigators that Devin got mad at her about something and he kicked her in the stomach, causing her to miscarry. Devin controlled every aspect of this woman's life. He controlled the makeup she wore, the clothes she wore and who she could talk to. Devin didn't let her out of his sight. She couldn't go anywhere alone. He even ran errands with her and he drove her to and from work. Whenever things got physical, Devin apologized, but things never never changed. Sadly, this was not the life that Danielle wanted to live. She wanted to take care of her kids away from Devin. She asked for a divorce multiple times, but every single time led to getting beat. Danielle even admitted that Devin told her, quote, if I ever left him, I would have to pay for it. And the only way of leaving this marriage was one of us is going to end up in a body bag, end quote. Daniel admitted that a few days before the horrific massacre, Daniel asked Devin for a divorce. The day before the massacre, Devin showed Daniel a video. It was a video of another woman performing oral sex on him. Then after she watched it, Devin told her, okay, I'll give you a divorce. When investigators interviewed Danielle, they wanted to know more about Devin and Danielle's connection to First Baptist Church. She told them that her family had been longtime members of the church. She herself was a longtime member of the church. However, once she got involved with Devin, all of that changed because he made her stop going. They would on occasion visit the church, but Devin only basically went to keep a watchful eye on her. Devin was an atheist, and during church service, he would just sit there and freaking laugh. As reported by the New York Times, Devin belonged to several atheist Facebook groups. On occasion, Devin told Danielle that God did not exist because if he did, he wouldn't allow people to suffer. 
It's interesting to learn after the fact that Devin had actually attended the church that he shot up. Investigators wondered if Devin was trying to kill Daniel's mom and grandma. And remember, he was successful in killing the grandma. In fact, the Express News reported that when Devin entered the church, he, quote, seemed to be aiming for a corner of the church where Daniel's mom, Michelle, typically sat, end quote. Turns out that Michelle, his mother-in-law, was not in the service on that day. Ken's Five reported that Michelle told investigators that Devin was very controlling. During the birth of their children, Devin did not want Daniel's family anywhere near him or his kids. He sent threatening messages to them, and on one occasion, he even pushed Daniel's grandma Lula. Devin was an evil, evil person. He once wrote on Facebook, quote, my wife was the right person to marry, but the rest of them could get shot in the face and I'd laugh, end quote. You guys, that is so eerie, even not knowing what he eventually did. Investigators learned that a week before the shooting, Devin actually visited the church during its fall festival. He was checked for weapons upon entering and he wore all black, almost like he was preparing for what he was going to do. And he acted so strangely during the fall festival that people actually kept a close eye on him during the event. But the question remained, why did Kelly commit a massacre at Sutherland Springs? That was the question that investigators tried to answer, but they never could put their finger on it. They did, however, learn that Devin was likely planning the massacre as early as five months earlier in July of 2017, because starting in July of 2017, Devin ramped up his purchases. He bought body armor, 100 round drum magazines for his rifle. He made to-do lists on his iPhone notes. One note read, quote, I am the angel of death. No one can stop me, end quote. He even had tasks listed that included, quote, delete social media accounts, destroy phones, clear YouTube and browser history, leave dog tags for son, end quote. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. For anyone in the military, specifically legal and investigations, that knew about Devin Kelly's 2013 domestic violence conviction, the question was, how did Devin Kelly legally purchase any guns? And just a day after the shooting, on November 6, 2017, 
the Air Force had an answer. Devin's fingerprints and the final disposition report documenting Devin's criminal history and conviction, well, those things were never submitted to the FBI database. The Express News caught up with Gregory Korn, a South Texas College of Law professor, who explained the process or how it should have worked. He said, quote, the Defense Department requires each Air Force base's Office of Special Investigations to submit a report to the FBI indicating a conviction and sentence when trials are completed. Even if that were not required, a similar report should be submitted to the FBI database when a convict is processed into a military correctional facility. They also should have sent his fingerprints to the FBI, end quote. Retired Air Force Colonel Don Christensen also spoke to the outlet and said that there were two reasons why Devin should have never legally owned a firearm. Quote, one, his conviction of an offense punishable by more than a year in confinement. And two, the Lautenberg Amendment to the 1968 Gun Control Act, making it a felony for those convicted of domestic violence to ship, transport, possess or receive firearms or ammunition. End quote. This case, as you can imagine, was a big deal for the military. How? How in the world could they have screwed this up so badly? And was Devin's case the only one? The Secretary of Defense told the Inspector General to investigate, and they did, which is why I have so many of the facts that I did to put into this episode. The Inspector General found that the Air Force had four opportunities to submit Devin's fingerprints to the FBI and two opportunities to turn in Devin's final disposition report, but they did neither. Sadly, had they done that, Devin would not have been able to legally obtain weapons. Now, of course, he could have found a way to do it anyway. Devin Kelly would go on to use three of the guns that he purchased after his domestic violence conviction to open fire on First Baptist Church on November 5th, 2017, killing 26 people wounding 22 others, and traumatizing an entire community. So you might be wondering, what were those six opportunities that the Air Force had that they should have taken to do something and didn't? Because at the end of the day, these are lessons learned, right? This is how we learn to prevent future incidents like this. Well, here they are, and these are taken directly from the Inspector General report. June 2011. When OSI opened a child abuse case against Devin, they should have submitted Devin's fingerprints after receiving a probable cause determination from the staff judge advocate or any legal advisor that Devin committed the crime. February 2012, after Tessa reported the abuse to OSI, same as above, they should have sought legal advice as to the probable cause and then they should have submitted the fingerprints. June 2012, when Devin entered pretrial confinement, they should have sent fingerprints then. November 2012, after Devin's conviction when he was returned to jail, his status changed from pretrial to post-trial inmate. The correction systems policy requires them to get fingerprints and submit those and to also submit his final disposition report. So those were two opportunities right there. And finally, in December of 2012, within two weeks of Devin's sentence, OSI should have submitted the final disposition paperwork to the FBI. During this post-massacre investigation, the inspector general found various contributing factors that led to a failure in the processes and procedures, including, quote, inexperienced special agents, individual personal issues at the time, leadership gaps, and a high ops tempo, end quote. 
Examples that they provided in the report were that the OSI detachment or the unit had five different people in charge in the span of four months. Three agents were TDY during different periods of the time. Four of the nine agents were probationary agents, aka relatively new. And honestly, the issue was training on submitting fingerprints and final disposition reports. The IG concluded their investigation by saying that even with these issues, there was no valid reason, no, zero, zilch, nada, for the failure to submit Devin's fingerprints and final disposition to the FBI. Sadly, due to the notoriety of this case, it was determined that this fingerprint slash final disposition issue is not a new issue at all. What? Yes. In fact, the inspector general has conducted several evaluations that found deficiencies in submissions. The first review happened way back in 1997. And this is what they found. By the way, hold your pants because these stats lowered me. In 1997, quote, overall, they found that the Army failed to submit required fingerprint cards to the FBI in approximately 82 percent of its criminal cases and did not submit final disposition reports in 79 percent of its criminal cases. The Navy failed to submit fingerprint cards in 83 percent of its criminal cases and did not submit final disposition reports in 94 percent of its criminal cases. And the Air Force failed to submit fingerprint cards in 38% of its criminal cases and did not submit final dispo records in 50% of its criminal cases, end quote. Well, 18 years later, in 2015, two years before this shooting, the inspector general evaluated the system again. And these were the 2015 stats. Overall, they found 28% of fingerprint cards were not submitted and 30% of final dispo reports were not submitted to the FBI. Specifically, the Air Force, they failed to submit required fingerprint cards in 31% of the cases. And in 32% of the cases, they failed to submit final disposition reports. Sadly, the inspector general was conducting a follow-up evaluation in November of 2017 at the same time as the shooting. Those results were released a month after the shooting on December 5th, 2017. The stats were better, but clearly still not up to par. The 2017 stats were 24% of fingerprint cards were not submitted and 31% of final disposition reports were not submitted. That was big military. But the Air Force failed to submit 14% of the required fingerprint cards and 14% of the final disposition reports. Now, The Guardian would later report that three months after the Sutherland Springs shooting, Military officials, quote, quietly added more than 4,000 records to the background check system. The Guardian reported that, quote, the spike in additional records first reported by CNN raises questions about whether errors in military reporting allowed thousands of dangerous or unstable people to buy guns, an error that may be impossible to correct, end quote. The outlet reported that a group of senators introduced legislation that would, quote, demand more public transparency of record keeping and stipulate penalties if the armed services fail to comply with the record reporting law, end quote. The legislation called Fixed NICS Act of 2017 was signed into law in March of 2018.
In the aftermath of the shooting, nearly 80 surviving victims and family members of victims sued the federal government, specifically claiming that due to the Air Force's failure to report Devin Kelly's criminal history, 26 people lost their lives and many others were injured. According to court records, at a bench trial that took place in April of 2021, the court concluded that the government failed to exercise reasonable care in its undertaking to submit Devin Kelly's criminal history to the FBI, and the government was 60% responsible for the plaintiff's injuries. U.S. District Judge Xavier Rodriguez summed it up, quote, had the government done its job, it is more likely than not that Kelly would have been deterred from carrying out the church shooting, end quote. Later in 2021, a bench trial was held to resolve the issue of damages. During this hearing, surviving victims and family members of deceased victims testified about the shooting and the effect it has had on their lives. Most victims suffer some sort of PTSD, anxiety, adjustment disorder, so I'm not going to go into that as it pertains to each person, but here is just a snippet of their testimony. John Porter Holcomb, who lost nine members of his family, testified that he is unable to fill his wife's shoes and he's not able to parent like she did. He was just feet away, helpless as his family was murdered. He will never be able to unsee the sight of his dead wife laying among his dead kids. Going home just sucks for him now. He was used to going home to a loud and rambunctious home, and now it's just silence. Every morning, he goes back to First Baptist Church to sit and pray. When he's there, he says that he feels closer to his family. Every night, he goes back to the church to close it down. John's only surviving daughter, Evelyn, didn't quite understand what happened. And for an entire year, she was like, I want mommy. She is now understanding the permanency that they will never return. And she is deeply saddened by that fact. Tara McNulty left behind her two teen or one teen and one preteen and her aunt. Haley, Tara's daughter, testified that she had to grow up overnight, basically, because she had to help raise her brother. She cannot attend church anymore because she is just terrified. She now experiences hypervigilance in all public places. James, Tara's son, says his greatest wish is to see his mom again. He's so lonely now that she's gone and he's sad he didn't get a chance to say goodbye. Aunt Margaret used to be adventurous and outdoorsy. Now she has visible scars from the shooting. And she has to get around with a rolling walker or an electric scooter. Aunt Margaret suffers from immense survivor's guilt. She testified, quote, Tara is a mom. She had kids, you know. I'm, I'm the single person with no kids. I figured she, she deserved to have life. She was younger than me. She needed to live her life, you know, end quote. Joanne Ward left behind her husband and her two surviving kids, Ryland and Rihanna. Ryland was physically injured and he has mobility issues and now he suffers from the thought that he might lose his dad as well. Rihanna used to be very outgoing with tons of friends and now things are different. She keeps her distance and she's scared to get close to people. She cries often and she wants to be left alone. Then 18-year-old Zachary Poston lost his grandma in the shooting and now he struggles with motivation. He testified that he cannot keep a job due to fatigue. I'm not going to lie. Every single time I was reading this, I'm not able to record without crying either. You know, I'm not able to record without crying. So I apologize. But when Keith Braden passed away, he left behind three surviving family members who were at church that day. His wife, Deborah, misses him terribly. There is just a void, a hole that she just cannot fill. 
Little Z will likely experience complications in the future when she grows up if she becomes pregnant. Robert Keith's son misses his dad, who he says was a guide in his life. Elizabeth, Little Z's mom, has experienced survivor's guilt because you might remember from my story, she was actually at church that day sitting in the seat that her dad eventually sat in and died. She wonders if she just hadn't left church that day, what would have happened? Maybe it would have been her or maybe something else would have happened. There were dozens and dozens more who testified, but I just wanted to give you a snippet of all the pain that this has caused. After hearing all of the testimony, Judge Rodriguez, who, by the way, I can't imagine someone having to sit through all of that and watch all the footage and and just read all the investigative reports like that's just. So after hearing all the testimony, Judge Rodriguez, not surprisingly, took three months to make a decision on damages. And in February of 2022, Judge Rodriguez had a figure. He ordered the Air Force to pay more than two hundred and thirty million dollars to the survivors and families of the victims of the Sutherland Springs shooting. However, the Texas Tribune reported in August of 2022 that the Department of Defense provided notice in June that they intend to appeal the judge's order. It should be noted that it's possible that there might be some sort of settlement. Now, I didn't know where to put this next part in, but I just wanted to give you a little snippet of the Department of Justice's argument during the hearing. In July of 2021, the government tried to argue to the judge that Devin Kelly's violence was not foreseeable, which, come on, there's an entire law named after this. It's called the Lautenberg Amendment, you know, but the judge was like, "Mm, no, 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 no. So you're telling me that it is so unforeseeable that this guy was violent, that the Air Force barred him from ever entering a military installation? Judge Rodriguez later wrote, quote, the trial conclusively established that no other individual, not even Kelly's own parents or partners, knew as much as the United States about the violence that Devin Kelly had threatened to commit and was capable of committing, end quote. Well, the Texas Tribune reported that before the judge's ruling on damages, the government proposed a settlement in the amount of $32 million, but that number was way too low. The outlet further reported on similar settlements, stating that in October of 2021, the Department of Justice agreed to pay $88 million to the families of the nine people killed in the 2015 shooting at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, where similarly background check errors allowed a gunman to purchase a gun. And yet, soon after the Charleston Church settlement, the government agreed to pay $127.5 million for the families of those killed in the 2018 shooting at the Parkland School shooting, where it was claimed that the FBI failed to act on tips about a gunman. After the Sutherland Springs shooting, everyone flocked to assist the church, the community, and its survivors. The San Antonio Express News reported that the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs received $2.91 million in donation. $840,000 was designated for victim relief. About $2 million was not designated by donors. And roughly $130,000 was donated for memorial, food pantry, and funerals. A week after the massacre, the inside of the church was gutted. It was cleaned up and it was painted all white. Inside the church, they displayed 26 white chairs, 
with a red rose to represent the 26 lives lost. In May 2019, the First Baptist Church opened the doors to a brand new worship center, not the same as the old one. At the grand opening, Governor Abbott delivered remarks. He said, quote, The opening of this new worship center is a new era of healing for this congregation and for the entire town of Sutherland Springs. I have no doubt that God will continue to work through this community to write the next chapter for the remarkable and faithful people of Sutherland Springs. That is why we do not gather in grief, but instead we gather in hope and we join together to celebrate the new beginning of the First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs." End quote. In 2021, the members of the First Baptist Church, together with the pastor, voted 69 to 35 to demolish the old church building. On November 12, 2017, the day after Veterans Day, Pastor Pomeroy, a man who had lost so much, managed to get in front of his congregation and speak. And I thought it fitting to share a part of his sermon with you today to end this episode on this deadly shooting. Here is just a snippet. I will be sharing the entire sermon after the credits for those of you who are interested in hearing the entire 10-minute clip. But last weekend, men, women, and children also fought and died for the freedom that we have here this morning, I believe. Amen. We are not angry that we are not going out and calling for this and calling for that. Folks, we have the freedom to choose, and rather than choose darkness, as the one young man did that day, I say we choose life. And by choosing life, amen. By choosing life, we have life and shall give life and shall share life, and the life is Jesus Christ. Love never fails. It will not. And that is why that building later on today will be open to the public. This is something that I haven't seen done in other catastrophes. But guys, I want the world to know that that building will be open so that everyone who walks in there will know that the people who died live for their Lord and Savior would want them to live for the same as well. Amen. All right, True Crime Army, this may be the heaviest case that I have covered to date, but it is a story that must be told, especially in its entirety. It was also a story that I personally wanted to know more about because almost as quickly as it happened, the story just kind of vanished from the news, creeping up occasionally on the year anniversary of the massacre. Putting the timeline together, this case was a real eye-opener. I always imagined that this was a case of a person who snapped, but that's not the case at all. This was the case of a violent, violent man who wanted to create absolute chaos. I wanna give a huge shout out to Haley Gray for researching this episode for me. She poured a lot of time into this. And listen, there is so much to digest in this case. I mean, there could be an entire case study on just this case. All right, everyone, that's a wrap. Be sure to stick around after the credits if you wanna hear all of Frank Pomeroy's sermon a week after the tragedy. It truly is a message of hope. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions. This episode was researched by Haley Gray Research. 
This episode was produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. The theme music was created by TyApps. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. But I would, I would submit to you this morning that this past weekend, our country was attacked. Our state was attacked. Our church was attacked. Glory to God, our people were attacked. But last weekend, men, women, and children also fought and died for the freedom that we have here this morning, I believe. Amen. We are not angry, that we are not going out and calling for this and calling for that. Folks, we have the freedom to choose, and rather than choose darkness, as the one young man did that day, I say we choose life. And by choosing life, amen. By choosing life, we have life and shall give life and shall share life, and the life is Jesus Christ. Love never fails. It will not. And that is why that building later on today will be open to the public. This is something that I haven't seen done in other catastrophes. But guys, I want the world to know that that building will be open so that everyone who walks in there will know that the people who died live for their Lord and Savior would want them to live for the same as well. Amen. One of the ladies that, that is no longer with us, she told me many, many times, if I could give my life so that one would come to know Christ, it would make it all worthwhile. I, I, know, I don't have a clue how many names, how many folks have come to Christ since this last weekend, but I personally know of 11 people that have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I believe that that building, that memorial down there, will be a testimony to the realization of many people and to the fact God is not dead. Amen. Satan may have attacked and thought he had a victory for a moment. But God is multiplying tenfold what he's going to do there. I, I am actually, don't, don't get me wrong, my heart breaks. But I'm excited to see what God's going to do. Because like I said before, I don't understand. But I know my God has a plan. And the more I see what has transpired up to that weekend and since, how can we have Thanksgiving in a time like this? Because I thank my Lord, my God that those 26 that are no longer with us are dancing in his presence today. It is we who are left behind that are having to struggle. And I think together we can come together in that struggle and say, thank you, Jesus, that we have one another, that we have you, Lord, and that we know where our friends and our loved ones and our family now reside. Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. And this is why the gods 
Old Covenant people, this was a verse that was a beacon of hope. To Satan, it was a declaration of war. But folks, we need to be aware and understand this morning that victory has a price. Victory has a price. Christians suffer wounds. You cannot be victorious in battle without also being wounded in battle. Wounds come. In the text this morning, God is announcing victory. He is saying that we are going to have victory, but he is also announcing the victor will be wounded. We can't allow this act that happened last weekend to keep us from church. We can't allow it to use it as an excuse why we can't or should not go to church. We can't allow that act to let us turn heinous and ugly as the darkness would have us to be. The victors, to be victors, which I have read the end of the book, we are, means you have to get in a fight. And if you get in a fight, even if you're the biggest, burliest one in the fight, you're still going to get hurt somewhere. If you're not, wasn't fighting. We're not going to be crowned unscathed, folks. To have victory, there has to be wounds. To have victory, there has to be scars. I believe this scar cuts deep. I believe this scar hurts. But Satan wounds those who fight him the most. Satan wounds those that he is worried about the most. And by him coming in and causing such scarring as he did last week, that means he was scared to death of what was taking place in Wilson County. And that's what we got to hold on to, guys. That's what we got to wrap our arms around. We need to be careful, guys, uh, 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 not to, to, to fall into remorse. Don't, just because we lose a round to Satan does not mean quit. As Christians, Satan's whispering in your ear, just give up. Look what happened. He might even be whispering in your ear, God forbid, but he may be saying it might be you next time. Don't allow the whispers to knock you down. You keep covering up, and when it's your turn to swing, you stick that fist out there and you let God drive it and watch how Satan falls to the ground. The enemy realizes time is short, guys. He does. He knows. He knows he cannot win. And for that reason, he wants to cause you and I and every Christian as much pain as he possibly can. Saints get wounded. Saints have scars. But saints also keep right on fighting. We keep right on moving. If you don't have any scars, you don't have any of those wounds, I'd have to ask, are you really fighting? Are you really in the battle? Because if you're on the front lines of any engagement, things are going to happen. The enemy wounds those who fight against him. Satan wounds those who he feels is a threat to him. Is that you this morning? I know it was Sutherland Springs or he wouldn't have moved so mightily. However, I submit to you today that just because we are wounded doesn't mean to turn back. We should fight harder because we are wounded. Amen. I say do not allow the lives that have been lost or changed to be in vain. Look at your brothers and sisters in Christ that laid down their life for what they believed in. In, the, in where they thought they could have R&R, the enemy attacked from behind. But that's okay, because my God saw everything there, and I serve a captain, a general, 
a God who's going to make sure that there will, there will be consequences to those actions. Amen. I know every single name. I know everyone who gave their life that day. Some of which were my best friends. <laughs> my daughter. And I guarantee you, beyond any shadow of a doubt, they are dancing with Jesus today, and they would tell you where they are. Keep on fighting. Keep on fighting. Amen. Thank you. God gets the glory. And guys, let me say this, and then I'll get down. I know it's hard for many of you to be here today, but you're here, and you're standing, and you're clapping, and you're praising the Lord. But what about in two weeks, three weeks, four weeks? That's when you need to stand, clap, and praise the Lord. Don't allow this to be a, 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 a decision of emotion. Make this a decision of victory. I know who wins. I've read the end of the book. If you have it, let me share it with you one day. And I choose to be on the winning side. What is your choice?